right, hi everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne. That is Chris Sacknessum. Chris, how are you doing today? David, I'm well. Uh, I survived a big dust storm, huge dust storm over the weekend, and uh, I was in kind of a little, uh, you know, sort of disjunctive, jangled sort of frame of that. But I ended up laughing this morning because I had a beautiful misread of a headline. The headline was supposed to be uh, schools deal with low test scores post-pandemic. And I read schools deal with low test scores post-academic. And I think my misreading is a little bit too much on the money. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah, it's nice over here. We had a really like not even gray but black cloud rainy day yesterday with a lot of wind (coughs) pardon me uh and now it's bright sunny and and high 50s low 60s cool so it's a nice day although yesterday something very interesting happened to me uh you hear often about people becoming triggered this is a popular term to use these days what triggered 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 But yesterday, I experienced being triggered. So, uh, eight or nine years ago... share. Eight or nine years ago, uh, I was just in a bad spot. A bad spot. Uh, Rios and I had temporarily split up, and I was in a hole of alcohol and drug abuse uh, that I didn't think I was ever going to get out of. And at the very, very lowest point... I would listen to one song on repeat over and over and over again. And it is it was Dance Hall Queen by the Swedish artist Robin. I would just listen to that. And the dopamine from the chorus was just enough to eke out a little bit more existence to just kind of keep going. Well, somebody posted that song on Twitter yesterday and I was whoosh, transported back to that time like I had never left and it was the most stuck because I'm I've been on a really high vibrational mellow peaceful kick lately and it was just stunning to me how quickly I was just back in the shit and I'm I still got that cloud a little bit but just one song it's all it took one song to remind me of all that all that nonsense so I think I get it now. I think I understand what being triggered means. Of course, I'm not like in a ball on my floor, hiding from the world, but you know, still, very interesting. Well, here's a thought, here's a thought, because we're really big into visualization and maps. If you have any cheap paper, like butcher paper, something kind of raw and nasty, but you know, something persistent that's not gonna you know, just fall apart on you. Draw, try to draw a little map between that and, and visualize, picture that song. Maybe you can print out the album or some sort of direct visualization of that, that piece of music, that commercial product. But try to draw some sort of just free form, not a lot of thought map between that period of time in your life and where you are now. And I guarantee you the process will be interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, like because yeah. it's very, very helpful to have uh, some sort of locus, you know, some sort of point like that. Um, 
I mean, I that really rings a bell for me because when I uh, when my main marriage was really, you know, it was in terminal decline, but I just wouldn't accept it, and I also was having real uh, difficulty accepting uh, my alcohol issues. I had gone into a kind of, you know, another level of denial that had just really it really had gotten away from me and. Um, the my ex-wife's family ended up staying with us for a few days which was very very problematic and I had some very odd hallucinogenic uh, experiences with Billy Joel's album An Innocent Man Mm -hmm. and it was just it was a I mean I realized okay things are slipping away here you yeah know? Uh, and it's very helpful to to have you know a kind of uh, image system or map that leads you from that point of for whatever you know reason you focused on that and however you focus tonally psychologically tonally uh, there's an interesting path there and the the really important thing is that 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 path is completely valid and legitimate, but you're the only one who knows what it is. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and we often forget that part of identity. You know, there are, yeah, there are two sides to it. You know, yeah, there is a, a level of legitimacy to it. No question. We don't need to apologize for that. But on the other hand, we have the responsibility to kind of articulate it, map it out, because no one else knows it exists. Yeah, know? yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I, I think that's a really good idea. I think that I've seen people do similar things. There's a thinker and writer named Chris Knowles who is brilliant when it comes to putting together uh, mass media symbolism and uh, connecting that to mythology and getting a bit conspiratorial with what the capital T they are doing behind the curtains. But his whole theory of synchro mysticism is centered around the her name is slipping my mind right now but the the singer for the cocteau twins so everything revolves around the cocteau twins and uh he's built a kind of map from her to stretching forward and backward in time and i wonder if you were to ask him like where what where like where were you when you were listening to Heaven or Las Vegas? I wonder if it wouldn't be in a similar dark place to your Billy Joel or my Robin experiences. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Well, I'll tell you one thing that that the uh, the process of trying to map that out revealed to me. Uh, and we're always trying to peel back layers because none of us are operating on a, you know, cause equals effect, one factor in the mix sort of thing. There are multiple layers of influence. And I realized that part of the, the dissatisfaction with my life at that moment and my lack, my loss of orientation in pretty profound ways, one crucial aspect was that I was feeling uh, tired of being an expatriate. Mm. 
And I had never said that to myself. I was always, that was my clan, that was my tribe, that was my passport. That was, <laughs> you know, that was on my inner passport. And I had suddenly really gotten fatigued with that. I didn't, I wasn't sure that Ameri the return to America, that idea hadn't completely formed yet. But I was imposing, therefore, on immediate personal relationships and situations, uh, a freight that, that, you know, they couldn't really be responsible for, you know. Um, How long were you in Australia? I was in, a, well, I was gone from America really from uh, the mid-80s until my formal return in 2011. Wow. So most of my life. And wow. in the midst of, I mean, I was in and out of America, um, you know, for readings and visiting family. But I, I, I was out of America entirely for eight years. Mm -hmm. And the first return back, I actually came to where I live now, Nevada. That was what I returned to. That was the coda that I needed to get back to, even though I'd never lived in the state then. I, I, count, I counted it my kind of spiritual home. Um, I didn't realize and, it was that long. Oh, yeah. And, and then in the, you know, across you know, all you know, the islands and a whole bunch of... You know, very weird environments. I've been in Asia, uh, the, the first uh, African trip, um, which was, you know, so there had been a lot of adventuring. And the adventuring was, was really great. Uh, but then the actual residence, you know, the, the, the buying that first home, we talked about sort of renovating a disaster, you know, abandoned home and, you know, marriage and getting a lawnmower and all that kind of stuff. Um, that started to really take its toll, you know. Um, but the real, you know, I, I, I thought I'd stepped out of time, as a lot of expatriates do. They think that, well, you, you, you're in your circle, your bubble with, you know, people you know. And then if you leave them, uh, it's like you've, you know, you've gone off into an Einstein sort of, you know, time thing. And or another world, Narnia, Middle Earth, or something, whatever. And everything is, uh, you're free of, of time and aging and all of those factors. And of course, that's obviously a very serious delusion. But uh, yeah, it was a long time. It was a long time. And I, I, I really didn't know uh, how it was getting to me, you know? Mm -hmm. Small little things. You know, hmm. small little things. That's fascinating. That's really interesting. That I'm surprised, first of all, that I didn't know that about. I didn't know that you were gone for quite that long. I mean, from the mid '80s until 2011. At that time, I mean, that would that was my entire life up to that point. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. I mean, I would have been in 2011. I would have been. 24 so yeah that's going on a quarter century away from america besides visits that's really that well i mean that makes so much sense too i mean the fact that you have such an interesting perspective on things has to be informed by that to no small degree i mean you just you you haven't you hadn't been in America right up until things started to change too when you came back wait a minute 
is this all your fault? Did, is you coming back to him? Did you trigger? <laughs> did you trigger all the bullshit that started in 2012? Was, yeah, <laughs> you know, it it looks a little suspicious to me too. I got to tell you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. I mean, I I don't. I, I'm a I'm a little bit reluctant to take responsibility, but there are moments where I think. It's kind of hard to ignore, yeah. you know? Yeah, Chris yeah. Ackleson comes back to America, and everybody gets woke. That's, that's really interesting. But, but that is ahead. important. Thank you for, for you know, appreciating just that it, it, the cultural thing of being able to really step outside your cultural frames of reference and your grammars, you know, I use that term a lot in, in ways that, people normally don't it it only happens if you go through some strange uh, adventure tunnel and distance and time or some traumatic brain injury or uh, I mean the two of the biggest influences malaria which I never would have gotten had I not left America and then just the time away and and mm-hmm. really being able to uh, to walk around some of those those issues that we we rarely even get a chance to step outside ourselves enough to even really see mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. really mm-hmm. really in a in a kind of deep dna uh hologram sort of way of like oh wow you know it and even even with that and and you know being smart being curious it still happens by accident. It's not something you can intentionally construct, I don't think. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, do you have a aphorism in a band for us today? I, okay, here's, I mean, the band is, uh, this is an odd found phrase. It's, it, it, it relates to your imaginative challenge. So I'm just gonna lay the title out of the band Mm-hmm. And in a few minutes' time, I'll connect that and explain where I found it. But I think it's interesting for uh, a music act. It's called Unplayable Asset. Mm. Okay. And the, their first album is Midnight at the Wig Store. Midnight at the Wig Store. And it's a concept piece. Uh that deals with uh, the post-pandemic world of accepting there are certain places and retail outlets, for instance, that you have to go to in person. You can't just buy it online. No one's going to buy a wig online. I don't really believe that. You know, mm. um, I think you 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 have to get fitted. You have to make sure it looks good on. You know, you want to see. If, you know, you want to hold it and see it. And, if you're the type of, you know, if you're going to wear a wig, you know, right. it's, it's, it's very personal and you're going to have to show up. Uh, so I think we're, we're getting, you know, thinking about these situations. We're showing up. Uh, and my students say, oh, you mean my body has to be there? You know, <laughs> I think that's kind of funny. Um, but there are, they bring together four different strands of music. And I'm seeing this as uh, two males, two females. But the four strands of music they incorporate, 
or traditions that they've grown up in are rap, death metal, chamber music, as in Baroque recorders, you know, that kind of thing. And the fourth member is uh, a non-musician who's into oral history mm. and uh, has no pretense of musical background except kind of the recording of voices and things. So unplayable asset, midnight at the wig store. Kind of uh, a sort of uh, Jungian uh, collective unconscious uh, folk techno rap take on post-pandemic strangeness. Love it. That's great. Okay. All right. Here's my here's my aphorism, and there's a, there's a point that comes out of this that I think is really important. The goal of the human knowledge project is to make the inventory of our ignorance ever more precise. And I think, you know, that, that's the kind of thing that gets said in different way. But I think there's some important things. One, I've, I've emphasized the idea of inventory, which you and I have talked about. I think that that's a really underrated tool that is uh, very, just vital. And, and to be able to do good inventory uh, is a real skill, you know, and it's a very practical skill that can help in any walk of life. But if you think about this a little bit more, I think this is a way to uh, maybe get perspective on aphorisms or you know insights and epiphanies, but a, a little bit of a prism measure uh, for all our thinking is that if something's really interesting and meaningful, that's partially because, and as a condition of that decision, it should lead to some things. There should be some interesting corollaries. Uh, and one of them in mine is, you can see there's a kind of, there's an implicit notion of a collective good, mm -hmm. the human knowledge project. I mean, think about that from the average person in the street, just, you know, walking around they have the benefit of some pretty heavyweight people who are thinking about new medical technologies, right. new this, new that, you know. There is a kind of, I wouldn't say it's altruistic, because uh, it's oftentimes driven by commercial greed and ego and many other things. But we do have within human society globally uh, a sense of, of humanity and, and a true global culture of, of collective uh, collective good it may not be always wisely deployed I'm not saying that but at least it's not uh, every man for herself <laughs> yeah 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 it's yeah if not if not a collective good at least a collective uh, desire for lumbar support we'll put it that it's, way oh lovely that's beautiful and the other thing which uh, I, I realize is it it um, configures the unknown uh, the opposite of ignorance mm -hmm. it configures mm -hmm. the unknown as a place yeah you know? and we that tie grows. back into George yeah. George Lakoff you know and and the metaphors we live by and how powerful 
you know, whether it's a container or a destination, whether whatever the metaphor is, mm-hmm. it, it completely changes our thinking and, and really predetermines a lot of potential paths of thinking. But if we're trying to uh, diminish ignorance, we're really looking at the unknown very much the way the wilderness uh, was looked at in the 19th century and the way the world was looked at, uh, you know, pre the age of exploration and discovery, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's a resource, yes, but it's almost a kind of uh, antagonist and we don't have the sense of, of preciously protecting it as a resource as much as we do. Uh, we've got to take this thing on, you know, otherwise we'll get lost in uncontrolled territory or, you know, as we said with, you know, my map of Africa, you know, area unexplored because of ants, you know, mm-hmm. the world, the, all the things we don't know is so vast, we can plunge ahead without much uh, respect or appreciation of the beauty of what we don't know. Mm-hmm. So I think I that's, that. but, and I think that's the, really the, important for right now too. I think people oh, should sit it's with what that. We're missing, isn't it? One hundred percent. I've been thinking about this in terms of uh, solutionism, because I noticed um, my steadily decreasing use of social media. I did post the other day that people on Twitter are great at identifying a problem, at articulating elegantly why it's a problem and then proposing a solution that would make everything 10 times worse. And it's that discomfort with the with the unknown, right? The lack of seeing the unknown as a thing in itself, adjusting the metaphors that we live by. <clears throat> I think once you start doing that, you start realizing that in some cases, things aren't meant to be solved, but endured. And uh, I, I don't know, I just, I think that, that that aphorism in particular really hits the nail on the head. Thanks. Yeah. And I think that if we look at at aphorisms and we look at maybe as a counter to solutionism, I love that idea. I think that is exactly a problem. It's a problem on the personal scale. It's a problem on the society scale uh, of our time that that really uh, interesting ideas, curiosities, even suggestions of, of solution have spin-offs, corollaries, extensions, and implications. And therefore, they really acknowledge from the get-go the potential for uh, stirring up more dust, causing more trouble. They're, and I think if we look at that as, as just built into whatever options we have, then we're not uh, looking for solutions. We're looking for uh, some sort of evolution of the situation, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's maybe the best we can hope for. Uh, because solutions, you know, well, or said in other ways, every solution creates a new problem. And, yeah, the invention of uh, the car is the invention of the car crash. Is I think, I think Baudrillard said that. I might yeah. be wrong, but. All right. Yes, As okay. far as my, as my imagination goes, it's been getting to work out the past few weeks finishing up my new novel so i feel like i'm sharp well i'm not sharp. okay but he's sharp so we'll, 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 well i was that. kind of i was thinking about that and i know you've also been doing quite a bit of editing uh publishing work so i thought i would um 
keep your imaginative challenge in a kind of literary, uh, filmic, uh, game world type of frame. Um, but the situation is that uh, you are <coughs> charged with harvesting data from a dead man's preserved brain. Ah, uh, perfect, yes. Okay, so you can decide within that science fiction espionage sort of trope who this person is, what you may be looking for. Are you freelance? Are you working for shadowy forces of good or evil? Or is that not important? Um, there are a lot of, of resonances and echoes here. You know, the movie Fantastic Voyage with Raquel Welch. In a, uh, I, she was my first real sort of hard-on fantasy when I was a very young, you know, in a skin-tight jumpsuit, you know, and they're on this miniature submarine, uh, you know, in a, some human body dealing with white blood cells and stuff, and, you know, all of us were just thinking, yeah, let's just get back to that close-up of Raquel. Um, but you've got, in addition to... Um, the need to give us a little bit of, of backstory about who the dead man is and what you might be looking for, which you, you may not be clear to you. It might be only something that you know when you come across it, that it's not been part of your brief. That could be, you know, challenge number one. But challenge number two, uh, when you actually do get close to what's going on you find a corrupted file and that is where I came across the term unplayable asset I found these uh, all these videos that I'd shot in the past that I was you know wanting to harvest and turn into something new and they wouldn't convert they were some yeah. older format you know and I kept getting this uh, announcement unplayable asset and I thought, oh, well, why is it an asset then? <laughs> you know? mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So you come across a corrupted file, uh, and there is one uh, blank uh, photo, or that's how the data presents itself. It may or may not be a photo. But you have one thing to help you. You have uh, a bit of software or a device, some mechanism which in your terms within this world is called the blind eel. And you can use the blind eel to resolve this corrupted file. You, you have to resolve the, the corrupted file, otherwise there's no more upload or download of anything. It stops the whole sequence. But because of the importance of it, you're very personally interested in what that blank bit of data, that photo that hasn't formed. So with the blind eel's assistance, you're going to be able to see what that bit of data is. And by the time you reach that point, we're going to be enormously curious about what you discover. All right. So think Sounds of it maybe good. as a photograph that is, you know, like old school you know, darkroom photos finally forming. Here's this mm -hmm, mm -hmm. bit of corrupted information that upon which your whole mission depends. And you've managed to, uh, you've got a skeleton key in the form of this thing or whatever program called the Blind Eel.
but what will what will take shape will it be incredibly important will it be the grail you seek unto itself or is it some rather inconsequential bit of nonsense upon which the whole world and this dead brain and all of your uh, you know larger objectives depend on good postmodern challenge I think I, uh, I like this one yeah this is good well I like them all but I like this one you too. happy with that I am happy with that. Thank you very much. What would you... Devin? Oh, can you hear me? Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Hello? Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah, oh, you're this back. stupid phone. Sorry about that. Um, no, I do, I do. I was actually just saying how much I liked that challenge. And I thought we okay. were having a, I thought we were having a conversation because you, <laughs> you actually said you liked that one right after I said it. And I was, <laughs> so I thought we were good to go. Sorry about that. Oh, I uh, thought you were off. You were off already into a dead brain with a blind eel. Uh, yeah. Oh, how interesting! So, you, wow. So you didn't hear any of my oohs and ahs no, while you were cool. talking. That's that, funny. That's okay. expressive form, man. That's hilarious. Well, on that note, what would you like to talk about today? Okay. Well, uh, we've we've been talking about imaginary voyages. We started off with the the lost, mysterious realm of Atlantis and what that means mythologically and how that is kind of the the er idea for lost civilizations other worlds uh, and another of course very popular line of, of imaginative uh, inquiry has been with lunar voyages the history of lunar voyages and I thought I could just recap sort of briefly as an overview uh, that history. There are two really, really uh, good books on this subject, which I think are worth recommending to uh, to people. If they, uh, just because if you have two books that can tell you the whole story, you know that's good. Mm -hmm. uh, a guy named Philip Gove, G O V E, wrote the Imaginary Voyage in Prose Fiction in 1941 and it covers just the whole spectrum not just lunar voyages not just other planets uh, but western expansion the age of exploration discovery lost islands and civilizations it's just a good handy resource for anyone interested in this field in the same vein Marjorie Hope Nicholson is considered the go-to scholar in this line and I know you have great regard for one of my heroes, the historian Francis B. Yates. Yep, uh, absolutely. Well, Marjorie Hope Nicholson is, is in that same league, and I think that uh, we need to celebrate these, these great uh, scholars of literature who really cross over into the history and philosophy of science, uh, history, generally their, their theories of, of what, you know, how history works, I think are very fascinating, but they're really good value. Um, but who I thought we should get to, and I just keep rediscovering. I, you know, discovery is great in life, you know, and to be at, you know, Gus's stage where discovery is kind of a minute-to-minute -minute thing is cool, but rediscovery is also really cool. And Daniel Defoe, I think, is someone who really needs to be rediscovered. Not that he's ever gone away, but I think we just don't really fully appreciate what an, a remarkable 
uh, writer and individual uh, he was. Most famous for Robinson Crusoe, which is an enormously influential uh, novel based on the real story of Andrew Selkirk, uh, which is a really interesting uh, story to review in real life. Uh, but Defoe's treatment of it has been so uh, resonant across you know, popular culture, it just doesn't go away. There are all sorts of issues now, thinking about the colonial uh, vision of it, the, uh, the racing, all sorts of things that he could be uh, you know, involved with. But uh, the other, you know, looking at his career generally, I'm, I'm just amazed that he is not more uh, the go-to person in our time. His Journal of the Plague Years was is how much more relevant, you know, could anything be? Yeah. Um, and for people who've never read it, and I never had anyone present this idea to me, but his book, Maul Flanders, uh, is a first-person um, novel from uh, a very street-level woman's point of view. And it is the most convincing uh, female protagonist created by a male figure that I have ever encountered. I think it's oh, remarkable. Wow. Um, he's, and it's written with a really, uh, a sense of gritty realism that anyone, you know, whether it's William Dean Howells or Theodore Dreiser or the dirty realists like Tobias, uh, is it Tobias Wolf? Um, Raymond, uh, you know, Carver, you know, none of those mm -hmm. people come really close. They're all, they all seem mannered relative mm -hmm. to Defoe. Uh, mm -hmm. I just can't imagine anyone who was so journalistically on the ground and of his time and yet ahead of so many curves. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I, I reviewed him because we're going to move on uh, in, in future episodes very soon to the whole subject of piracy. And um, which is such an exciting topic. Anybody who's not interested in piracy, I just kind of wonder about. Um, but yeah. <laughs> part of his canon are, is quite a commitment, actually, quite a commitment, a commitment to the imaginary lunar voyage. Mm -hmm. uh, the principal one um, is The Consolidator, or Memoirs of Sundry Transactions from the World in the Moon which was published in 1705. And this is another thing about his writing that uh, if he ever sounds at all or reads at all in an obscure diction, it's because he chooses to do that and is representing certain segments of his society. You know, It's not because it's in the past, quite a long ways for us. Remarkably, remarkably modern. And very important, Joyce actually gave a really interesting lecture on, on uh, and, and said that Defoe was the first truly English writer who was not imitative of, um, you know, someone else like Charles, you know, um, you know, Chaucer, Milton, you know, none right, of those right. people were, were quite on that level. Uh, but the other thing that I, and this is what, got me and I, I really do think the lunar voyage body of literature is so interesting 
from many points of view, but if you look at just one aspect, which is sort of the literary study side of, well, what's the purpose of these things? And quickly, satire and allegory come to mind. And I think it's really worth thinking a little bit about what those two terms mean, because we think we know what they mean. But uh, even just a few moments of private thought about both those terms on their own and how they might relate is, is worth any reading person's time. Mm-hmm. But what is remarkable about his approach to satire and allegory is his frame of reference is so uh, it's much wider and yet it's much much more focused than ours today and I, I think it's because and I started writing a short uh, piece for him because he's kind of beginning to be discovered uh, but, well again and not that he ever went away but, but really seized upon the way that, that I am uh, human nature you know and he's right on on the case this is one of his great gifts to us in his mind that single two-word phrase sums up the entire problem Hmm. you know because a significant portion of the uh how we define human is opposed to nature isn't it Mm -hmm. it's against Mm -hmm. nature it's outside nature it's beyond nature you know Mm -hmm. That's not, uh, you know, cities aren't like, you know, giant termite towers. Uh, they're artificial, you know? And you think, oh, right. well, wait a minute. The towers are what termites build, and we think they're natural. Cities are what humans build, but those are artificial and fake and not real. And, you know, we kind of, and I think that's where so much of the modern anxiety has uh, flowed and then amplified. You know, it's become... Uh, a really, if you think of it as a river, it's become a kind of a raging river from sort of pretty calm, you know, beginnings. This nagging sense that human nature is a is a paradox, an oxymoron. Um, but looking at what what he he does, and he is such a damn good writer. Um, he is looking at satirizing in such a way that addresses human foibles and human characteristics overall. Mm-hmm. It's not that he misses any any shots at the the politicians or the, the culture of his day. And, you know, of course, the more you know about the history and the more you know about his context, probably the more references you'd pick up on. But it's not dependent on that. And you compare that to today's so-called satirists like John Stewart or you know Colbert or I, I don't know whoever else you'd throw up. There aren't really that many writers doing a good job with that. I think satire is kind of scaring people, um, or it's it just we know already what what's going to be satirized. Uh, but no one would think to expand that beyond the sociopolitics of of the moment. I don't think I haven't found them. Uh, you know, we're not even getting that sense of, of you know, of the inclusion mm-hmm. in, in the human foible predicament. Uh, and I think that's, it would be very, very interesting to get young 
uh, journalists, young stand-up comics, young uh, writers interested in, in sort of, you know, social issues and restorative justice and satire or, you know, polemic, to get them reading him again, you know, because right. it's, it's, a, it's a tonic. So that's my opening view. Um, and then uh, I want to share and get your response um, to one of his quotations. And I, I think it's, it's cool because it shows some of his ventriloquial capability uh, to take on you know, a very different perspectives. He's just a, you know, he's a really smooth writer. But it, it covers so many of the issues that our show has been about from the beginning, and we can peel that apart. Um, but what do you just think of this kind of campaign to, to really revisit uh, Defoe, just for starters? That's my current hobby horse that I'm riding. I, listening to you talk about it, it made me realize that it's something that I've been missing and I didn't realize that I was missing it. What really broke it open for me was the idea of modern satirists as being targeted weapons for whatever ideological point is being made at the time. And I think the closest we ever came before they succumbed to the mind virus as well was uh, South Park, because South Park seemed to have bullets for everybody. It was it, nobody was kind of off limits. It wasn't a left or a right thing. I remember in the early two thousands, people getting into debates about whether or not they were, you know, left or right. There was a whole term for it. It was called being a South Park Republican, which was you know you just kind of didn't right. like like stupid people. But you're bringing up such an interesting point because that is something that's missing, and that is precisely what I've been trying to get across when I talk to people about whatever the issue of the day is, I don't, it seems to me that the, the goal or the ideology of the moment is paramount. And that's what everybody moves towards. So there's, it doesn't, truth doesn't matter. Human nature doesn't matter. All that really matters is that we get to the end point that we were supposed to get to. And you often see people who poke their head up over the, over the trench line and look out and get immediately shot in the head. Uh, I'm thinking of people like, you know, Jordan Peterson or Camille Paglia or people like this. Uh, Peterson, by the way, who has completely just devolved into a public... Uh, you know, weeping and, and semi-incoherence, which is really unfortunate. But whenever you get people who are looking at human nature and the ways in which this, these kind of natural tendencies that we have, regardless of our ideological bent, inform the way that we act and the way that we twist things to our own, uh, you know, for our own designs, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that's really missing, right? Like, where's the good, the good novel being written right now about, uh, you know, college campuses and and you know, and from the point, by the way, of somebody who considers themselves left leaning, like, where's the real funny, scathing critique of the left and the right 
and all these elements of culture. There are just things that people don't want to touch. And the, the funny part is, is that there's never been a time in my life when it, it's been more, it feels like it would be the easiest thing. I mean, how, how hard do you have to work to satirize, you know, a Tumblr? Here's a good example. The other day, I saw a tweet from a woman who was uh, mad because her, do you know what Instacart is? Do you, have you ever used Instacart? No. Okay. No. I, I haven't either because I find it satanic and demonic. But Instacart is a personal shopper app. You basically oh, okay. list out what you want and they go buy it for you. So this woman basically was mad because her Instacart shopper was marking a, a bunch of stuff in the grocery store as not available. So she got in her car, went uh, to the store, found the Instacart shopper playing on his phone and you know basically not doing his job. And somebody responded to this with, well, why don't you just go buy your own damn groceries? To which this, a bunch of other people jumped in immediately to say, that's ableist of you to say. Some of us can't go to the store and buy our own groceries because we have too much anxiety. Going to the grocery store takes all of our energy that we have for the day. And we have no energy left to do anything else. So that's an ableist. I mean, how do you, that's the easiest thing in the world to satirize. Like life, life has become satire. So it's a long-winded way of saying that I'm, uh, I'm pumped for this Defoe angle because uh, we need more people ripping other people to shreds. Ishmael Reed's the last one that I can remember who really did that well. I think. That's a, look. Both those references are terrific. Thank you for. Uh, I mean, I should have thought of, of South Park in that regard. But but the moment you said that, that's certainly. I mean, I don't know. I the, I admire them so much for keeping the their edge over the years, uh, which is very hard to do in comedy. But they have always been, I think, equal opportunity offenders. And, and really uh, sketching out of an extremely subversive and imaginatively challenging approach that you never, their, their satires never reduce to an easy algorithm, in my view. And I, I think that's exactly what I was uh, trying to get to about Defoe. And I, I think Ishmael Reed probably would be, uh, and tonally, he and Kurt Vonnegut have some things in common. I think Vonnegut, at his best, Absolutely. had some of that going. Absolutely, yeah. uh, Like Richard Carlin, uh, the comedian, I think Vonnegut sort of sadly got a little bit uh, morose and, uh, you know, really misanthropic towards the end. But Did you know... And Defoe so, manages so, to avoid that. Sorry, just to finish that thought. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the George, the, the Carlin... Uh, did you mention George Carlin? That, that was what yeah, you said. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. A hilarious uh, tidbit about him on the morose, uh, sort of nihilistic angle. Carlin recorded an album called I Like It When a Lot of People Die. And uh, unfortunately for him, it was slated for release on uh, 9 11, 2001. <laughs> oh, wow. That's a great detail, David. That's terrific. But, Again, you know, oh. life is, I mean, it's, it's just, it's full of this, uh, this mode. And I think that this does tie directly into the anti-solutionism that I've been thinking of lately, because I'm so 
Well, I'm trying not to complain. I did make a promise to myself to not complain, so let me rephrase this before I rant about it. But what I am interested in is less a prescriptive uh, diagnosis style, and I'm looking more for descriptive. I don't think we're I don't think we're describing and trying to understand enough. Will be the the whole of my critique because otherwise I'll break my promise to myself. That's, that's beautifully well said. I think that's uh, that's yeah, yeah, you know that's exactly it. it well, in 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 Lakoff terms or in terms of of the art we've you know been discussing in terms of the city. It's prepositional distance, you know. Yeah, right. It's just that the prepositions have this enormous, rich impact of psychology and morality and and everything. You know, they're not just proposition prepositions; they're propositions, truly, and they they absolutely inform uh, and give a real uh, deterministic sort of cast to the paths, decisions, values, views, and opinions that we end up uh, developing or think that, or, you know, think that that's us, that's our identity. Yeah, right, okay. I'm sorry, a river runs through you, you know, that's that's what I say to people, Jesus. I love that, that's great, a river. I'm just gonna say that very cryptically to people from now on. If if they go on a rant about this, if they're talking about how they're their uh, underpaid wage slave isn't buying the right kind of almond milk for them, I'm just going to glare directly into their eyes and say, a river runs through you. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> Psychic defense, man. That's it. That's Psychic hard defense, theme. baby. Let's go. Tell me more about Defoe. I'm hyped on this now. You got okay, me all, all well, worked up. Well, I've got... It's a, it's a paragraph of pretty rich text it shows the diversity of, of voices that he's able to take on, because he can really do any sort of style from your basic, you know, court reporter of the day to uh, a high imaginative writer. Uh, but this has a lovely degree of tremendous insight into the the worldview of his time and some of the key problems that we have inherited. And there also, you'll hear some references uh, or some echoes or the echoes that he stimulated in other writers. Uh, And and two of them are are very interesting, which I'll get back to. Uh, Kafka and a a rather famous American writer. But here is uh, a densely... Uh, worded and but densely interesting paragraph from our narrator on the moon and having adjust to some of the perplexing features of, of the culture there and one of the uh, experiences just that this paragraph is, is a result of is the presentation to the, the protagonist narrator of some rather interesting uh, binoculars uh, and a, a group of sort of optical uh, bits of technology that uh, are, well, you'll see. But here's the quote. In examining the multitude and variety of these most admirable classes for the assisting the optics or indeed the formation of a new perceptive faculty, It was, you may be assured, most surprising to find there that art, 
art had exceeded nature and the power of vision was assisted to that prodigious degree as even to distinguish non-entity itself. And in these strange engines of light, it could not but be very pleasing to distinguish plainly and finely betwixt being and matter, and to come to a determination in the so long canvas dispute of substance versus spirit. And I can solidly affirm that in all our contention between entity and non-entity, being and not being, there is so little worth meddling with that if we had had these glasses some ages ago, we should have left troubling our heads with them. Wow. So Defoe, <laughs> Defoe comes to a <clears throat> beautiful Taoist understanding of reality through watching virtual reality pornography. That's my interpretation of that. I'm so glad you... You know, this is why we do this because <laughs> I, you know, I love the way your mind works. I really appreciate, you know, that that just spontaneously just popped up, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. and is there and, you know, not something you had to sort of really scratch your head about. But yeah, the virtual reality connect, because we read allegorically allegories and satires and we know that in order for this to be somehow significant to us, it has to say something about our own time or we're going to make it fit into that. There's no other way. Right. So you went instantly to that point. And that is something I think that everyone needs to, every thinking reading person needs to remember is how, how we start interpreting something. is not what's in it for me, but, but some aspect of the significance relative to our time, our situation, our context, our matrix, you know, not just us personally. So that was terrific. I have, um, I have two quick questions for you about that passage. Uh, the first is seemingly random. And if you don't know this, it's such a piece of trivia that, you know, don't, don't bother with it. But do you know when scientists figured out that the gravitational pull of the moon would be different from the Earth's? Oh, they had, I mean, um, Tycho Brahe and Kepler had that really under control. Did they really? Uh, okay, so they already knew that, that, that gravity would be different on the moon. Well, that's a good question because Kepler comes up in our discussion of lunar voyages with his uh, somnium or Kepler's dream. Uh, that may be going too far. I'm going to walk that back and say I, I don't think they had extrapolated or inferred to that level. I okay. think that they, they were clearly on top of the notion that, uh, that the moon was objectively uh, much smaller in, in size and mass than the Earth, and therefore 
but look, the I, a whole idea of gravity was still really just you know right. taking shape. Right, right, um, right, right, right. My my other one is there's a mention of substance versus spirit. Is that does that mean materialism versus idealism? Kind of the yes, it does. Okay. Yes, it does. Okay. It, it, the, that there's a through line from the ancient Greeks straight to Kant, and therefore beyond now to either Terence McKenna and or Richard Dawkins. Yeah, right. but okay. it's materialis versus spiritualis. He's actually he, I I just eliminated the Latin, but yeah, that's exactly so, what's going on. And Defoe's saying that the line between that is what he's learned is that it's it's pointless to even to even really quibble over that because fundamentally there's only experience or said another way that the 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 line dividing say the animate and the inanimate is itself animate and inanimate i like that better that's better i I think it's kind of I think your your mention of of the Taoist sort of view is very interesting because I think that is that is absolutely spot on, and like a few of the really luminous uh, English and European writer thinkers, uh, you know, pre nineteenth century, and there are only a few that are in this category. Defoe anticipates the knowledge and awareness of Eastern traditions that he he didn't you know have. Right. I'm pretty certain he didn't have that. Right. Uh, you know, it would be another hundred years, and, it, and it's only some weird people like Coleridge would start to really get onto that if they weren't you know other travel adventure type writers. So he he's way out in front of that curve. But just to break down some of this because. Uh, you know the uh, the tone is somewhat sort of, of pompous in a sense, and yet slipping in there are some really interesting ideas because for he may not be the exact first person to ever say this, but I think his level of uh, seamless articulation is is really worth uh, appreciating. Can I can I, can I stop you for just a second? And I, I just yeah. have a quick question, and you you will know this. Um, I took the tone as as being funny, and and mock. Was is that intentional, or is that just the way that he was writing at the time, to the best of your that, knowledge? That's the way that this this unfolds, mm-hmm. and it's it's part of his authorial technique of managing to be bigger than a simple critique satire of an immediately identifiable and therefore dismissible segment of his okay. current. He, he gets bigger because he, he manages to have a tone that sort of lulls you along with a kind of better yeah. than the Lunarians and, gotcha, gotcha. Uh, you know, but he's constantly learning things he doesn't know, so he's actually in a real uh, ignorant position of, of trying to play catch up because mm-hmm. everything is different. And then every he slips in a really big idea. <laughs> well, he slipped in about three major Western civilization ideas into this one paragraph. And I just think that's amazing because, mm-hmm. I mean, just think of the first line. For, for assisting the optics. Okay, so this is a new addition to optical technology and it greatly expands the capability of the the sense of vision. 
But no, it's indeed the formation of a new perceptive faculty. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would be, you know, into the 20th century before people started, well into the 20th century, before uh, people really started appreciating the impact of photography and how that had changed human culture, human thinking, communication, and yeah. possibly even the mind, the right. brain. Right, You know? Certainly and our writing, without a doubt. But yeah, yeah. The By implications the way, are enormous, right? You know. By the way, I'm also going to be slipping in. I need to. Ass I need an assist on the optics, from here on out. I love. I love this idea of becoming a complete linguistic weirdo, who's you know going to go get my eyes checked, going to the optometrist. I'm like, I'm going to assist the optics. And remember, and spell it in your mind, CK, mm. not just C. Oh, is it that, CK? That, Oh, yeah. that's beautiful! Yeah. I fucking love yeah. that. That's fantastic. Yeah, I knew you, I knew you'd groove on that. That's so. I mean, that's a really powerful idea, and it connects with you know Edward T. Hall, the anthropologist we've talked about. We'd much later talk about the idea of human extensions, about how technology and all our inventions, also you know software ideas and systems, take on a life of their own and have their own evolutionary path. And that sense of divergence is kind of the beginning of the modern anxiety that we've lost control, you know. So he's really on to that. But your point about the, the difference between materialism and idealism in, in a scientific philosophical sense, not political idealism, capital P, capital I, or capital M, capital I, I mean, we can't even really consider how important that point was to the society of his day, even and certainly down to street level, people with no education, no, no way to, to formulate that dichotomy or that binary in any kind of direct, you know, articulate way. Nonetheless, that was the issue of the time, and it permeated everything. The nature of that society was it, it permeated downwards, it percolated downwards from an intellectual educated in a priest sort of caste down, and that may or may not be a good thing, but we don't have that, that caste in the same way. They're not held in that sort of high in esteem. So, but though that issue couldn't be more the, the focus of the problem today, but would anyone ever even think to phrase it that way, that directly? No, I just don't believe they would. I love that you just said percolating down. I've never thought of percolating as a downward motion. Interesting, okay. It's wrinkling, yeah. it's wrinkling, it's wrinkling <laughs> yeah. my brain. I think you're right. I, I think it is always sort of percolating up, but yeah, no, I mean. Yeah, percolating can, down. No, why not? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, this idea of having this sort of skeletal idea of, of materialism versus idealism beginning in what year is this? This is uh, pre seventeen hundred, so it, it, it's just it's uh, my goodness. You know, it, it, it the early eighteenth century. The more the things change, the more things change. The more they stay the same. We got indoor plumbing, and that's about it. The, <laughs> the questions remain, don't they? That's fascinating.
What do you think is going on with guys like this who are out of time? What do you think is like? It's just a genetic anomaly, or is it something else? Well, it has to be something that singular uh, at base. There's no question about it. One of the things, experience plays a part in the sense that Defoe had an interesting opportunity that a lot of even very smart people of his time wouldn't have had in terms of very broad exposure across class and situation. He got that through his journalism and being kind of, you know, not aristocratic to begin with and not, you know, uh, an orphan either. Um, so he was kind of perfectly placed, but it's fascinating, and I don't, I, I for the life of me don't know uh, why I have never heard of an English literature class in America or the UK that immediately juxtaposes uh, Jane Austen, one of her most important books, say Pride and Prejudice, whatever, with Maul Flanders, mm-hmm. you know, uh, because what Defoe demonstrates is just an absolute, to me anyway, it's just a remarkable sense of class. Right. And I mean, the English are obsessed with class, and you could go on and on and on about it. And you know, a lot of writers do, they usually sort of more upper class, or, or you know, it's, it's always kind of obvious what the point is. His, Maul Flanders, is, it's not obvious. There isn't really a, an implicit rhetorical political point about it. It's just you're inside a woman's head with certain social conventions, you know, restrictions that, that focus very heavily on, on women. And that's, you know, of course, what we look to, to Jane Austen. She's a social <coughs> context novelist. But Defoe opens it up to uh, a woman of this, and, and even later when Jack London wrote Maggie of the Streets, which is another sort of really good populist, progressive sort of book that uh, should be read now in woke times and isn't, uh, nothing on, on Defoe. So mm-hmm. some, I think that with him the experience was, was terribly important. The third thing, and it's the subject of my current class with my young students who are uh, really, you know, most of them are 18, 19, but they're good writers, and they are seeing for themselves the, the principle that no matter what form of writing you engage in, and certainly the most formal academic, you know, structured forms, story remains still important. You are always a storyteller as a writer. And I think that that ties to Defoe in the sense that when he came across, you know, strange news stories, and he had that Fortrian sense of, you know, kind of looking out, he was curious, he's probably kind of a hoarder, you know, of odd little bits of knowledge or phrases or things, and he'd file it away and then jump on it. But he would think of that, that in, in, in a story sort of sense, not in a fantasy TV, you know. I mean, Robinson Crusoe is a very, very straightforward, pragmatic book, as you probably remember. But he nonetheless has a storyteller heart, you know. Yeah. Okay, so this, is, this ties in perfectly, doesn't it? Because we're talking about description versus prescription. And 
<clears throat> without over-inflating the role of the writer, which is you and myself, that's what we're really missing from our mass social consciousness right now, is good storytelling, non-propagandistic storytelling, I should say. We need, we need well, that. I think, I think there's an equation. For me, there's an equation that good story is, is, is not. If the moment you introduce propaganda, which is an extreme bastardized form of rhetoric, uh, you, you've lowered the tone. It's, it's, you've lost the, the sense of story because it has far too much intent and purpose. And it, you know, going back all the way to one of our first uh, episodes when we were talking about Gregory Bates and his just monumental insight, the more predictable a message is, the less information. It there we contains. go. There we go. You right. Know? So I you mean, should just wow. be, you should just take the Uzi out and just start spraying left, right, center. Like who, everybody, to put it in, in a certain kind of terms, like everybody can catch these hands, right? <laughs> like th there's, yeah. enough, there's enough for everybody. I love that. I think that you've touched upon a really important idea for 2022 that people are not talking about enough. There's... um a widely mocked assertion that comedians think of themselves as truth tellers and I think that where that uh, I think where that sentiment comes from is the fact that comedians tend to uh, become ideologically brainwashed into into pushing a certain uh, agenda or whatever when really you know when you mash that up against the kind of fatuous stuff that they're saying otherwise it doesn't quite work but the idea of the comedian as truth teller even though it is widely mocked I think what you're saying is that it's it's true insofar as they become storytellers and allow their sort of critical humorous gaze to Rome unimpeded by you know the restrictions of what you can and can't talk about and the same goes for us as novelists you know like we we've, we got to tear it all down nobody's safe and I think that the uh, the degradation of our era could really be captured very simply with uh, the contrast between the narrative, a, a term that we hear all the time, versus story. I mean, if you had two magazines to choose from, one was called story and one was called narrative, which would you choose? I mean, narrative just sounds awful, doesn't it? And you know, and in another you know frame of, of literature, so we're sticking still within the field of literature. Uh, narration is is viewed, you know by anyone sensible, I think, as secondary to dramatization. Right. You know? Right. It's, it's, narration is what you have to do because there's no drama, there's no dramatization. You just, you're not actually a good storyteller. You're having to narrate. <laughs> Less, I said this last night in a text to some friends of mine. I've been touching up my novel and sending snippets of it to a group chat with a, other writer friends. And 
you know, we were talking about it, and they remarked on the way that I narrate. And they said, I've never seen anybody narrate this way. And I said, well, first of all, you need to read Chris Sacknesson because that's where I got it from. But I... Thank you. I believe that... I lit- I'm pulling up the text right now. It's the, I. Too many people try to narrate, not enough people perform. There you go. Ah. Ah. That's it. That is it. That is exactly it. Uh, but at some point, I, I just I, I, I want to just run through the history of a great weird writer. It's certainly weird writing. If we, if we don't say it's great writing about voyages to the moon, but to close off uh, on Defoe, I'm, I'm kind of excited about this because I think I mooted last time that Borges has a beautiful short essay about Kafka's influences, the precursors of Kafka. And uh, he, identif- he, he finds three out of his you know, voluminous... Uh, master librarian reading experience. Uh, Zeno, the Greek philosopher who came up with a beautiful set of four uh, logical paradoxes. Uh, Achilles and the tortoise maybe being the most famous, but uh, it's some beautiful uh, work. Did he do the arrow? Yes, he did. Okay, I'm familiar with that one. Yeah, and he was uh, as, as famous as he remains he was a very humble man and uh, really said that all he, everything that he was doing was in support of his great hero, the philosopher Parmenides. And he's a beautiful example, uh, which is taught often in um, the history and philosophy of science, of, of how great work doesn't stand on its own. It needs great champions. You know, you need an mm-hmm. Ezra Pound or an Allen Ginsberg or a, an agent, a provocateur, uh, you know, an advocate, someone who can get over with the establishment. And Zeno was that for Parmenides. Uh, the second of Borges thing was Han Yu, uh, a Chinese writer who gave us the, a curious fable of the unicorn, which had a big influence on uh, the the idea of uh, Myong, the, the uh, philosopher who, his, his idea of, the, of his jungle of imaginary creatures, things that don't exist. Why do we know what a leprechaun looks like? Is, you know, how do, all, how do we have a taxonomy worldview of the immaterial, invisible, uh, not real world, which is still real? Uh, he also influenced Charles Fort. Um, but Han, you was talking about, well, you know, why does everyone know what a unicorn is? And there was a beautiful G.K. Chesterton quote, which we incorporate into the Psychic Defense Manual. And I think you introduced that in one of the early episodes. You know, it's one thing, uh, you know, to think that a manticore or, you know, uh, a chimera is, is uh, you know, uh, an interesting thing. But it's another thing to look at a giraffe or rhinoceros creatures that don't that do exist but look like they, they shouldn't you know mm-hmm. so I mm-hmm. love that uh, the third uh, that he mentions is Kierkegaard and a lot of the thought experiments that Kierkegaard you know you, they're kind of analogs of 
of Zeno. You know, you can never quite get there. You, you'll never, you'll never get to the castle. Uh, the Great Wall of China in Kafka's world is never going to get finished. And if it did, you'd never hear about it. You know, on, on the, the impossible happening all the time. Well, I think that Defoe uh, qualifies his his constant unsettling of of every every kind of certainty or piece of ground that you get as a reader is is undermined, and not in any kind of you know deconstructionist sort of way. It's just just happens so organically, mm-hmm. and you find yourself thinking, I don't know what to think, and I'm not sure what Defoe thought about this, and everything becomes just intrinsically nuanced, uh, which I suppose would turn some people off, but I think it would be more liberating for people than not. Now, isn't that fun, though? Isn't that fun? Isn't that how we have fun, by constantly unsettling ourselves and, you know killing our sacred cows and burning bridges and that's the way that's the way I have fun and it's one of the reasons you know before Lost Explorers we called it no country and it was because we felt like we didn't have a home and that's because it's just more fun to constantly to be on shifting ground all the time I don't know I don't know I, I, I don't know how to relate to people that that's actually a really fun way of going about life but many people do not agree with that statement at all well what's weird is that if we do our antonym therapy treatment on this uh, the the opposite of boredom is surprise and so when we're not surprised we get bored and that leads to all sorts of things like anxiety spiritual Mm -hmm. fatigue uh paranoia you know everything else kind of sort of stems from that because we're not occupied enough we're not inhabited enough what if we right. said that we're not inhabited enough god uh, damn that's good we're not inhabited enough you know and i think that's so we we, we really do crave uh, you know an uncertainty and and the and the kind of the respect to be able to make up our own minds about something and yet we live in fear of that mm. and I'm beginning to, here's a hopeful thing to come out of this. As uh, a teacher at the university level, I'm beginning to have a little bit more faith that that the the age range where that capacity gets lost is a little bit more fluid and flexible. I think a lot of people think, oh, basically, you know, childhood is the end of the game. You know, if you've you've lost that, that fluidity and that enjoyment of, surprise and disorientation and see it in a positive light as confidence building that you can actually rise to this opportunity and challenge. Uh, I think there's a little bit more leeway. I see people on the on the edge of that now mm-hmm. between 17 and 21. I think, you know, we almost say kids are growing up faster. They're not. They're staying immature longer. And maybe, maybe that's not all bad, if you right, know what I mean. Right, you right, know? No, I get you, I get you. It's just, it's a, it's a directional issue, right? It's, it's not a problem in and of itself, it's what's done with it. Right, right, yeah. That's, yeah, that's a good way to put it. Uh, and the final thing about Defoe, just to close, in terms of literary influences. So I, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, that, 
that Kafka would have had some exposure, but that's not Bohr's his, his point. He, he, uh, it isn't necessarily that writers have to know their influence. They kind of create roads back to their influence. It's like my suggestion of mapping out your trigger moment with that song, you know? It's you, you, only you know the path. Certain writers create paths, whether forward or backward in time, uh, to other, other writers. Mm. But listen to that very last sentence of his from this paragraph. That if we'd had these glasses some ages ago, we should have left troubling our heads with it. Mm-hmm. To me, that instantly brought to mind the voice of Mark Twain. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. he's kind of going down home. I mean, that's what Twain Twain was. You know, that was his shtick. You know, he could go down home with with big ideas and you know put his fingers through this you know his suspenders and chomp on his cigar and you know it sounded like you know uh, a print shop or a pool hall or you know a train station he could make himself seem much more populist than he in fact was but he certainly read Defoe you know he devoured Defoe so some of those characteristics and I think it's interesting that we have talked about humor uh, from several points of view because I think that is one of the things I feel we're missing the most is this this kind of uh, sense of subversion that we used to kind of associate cutting-edge humor with. It just seems to me lost at the moment. Um, you know, I think I'm glad you mentioned South Park. I think they've they've done a great job. conversation in particular man I say this every time I should just stop saying it but I'm fired up I was kind of in the dumps when we started and now I'm all hyped <laughs> that's that's the mission man that's that's the goal I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that well do we uh, shall we touch base with the imaginative challenge sure I'm working for a shadowy organization that's looking to keep certain secrets from getting out into the public. And I go into work every day and I go and I look for these secret hidden, we'll just call them files for lack of a better term, in people's brains. So who comes across my desk so to speak but one mr kanye west Ooh, interesting okay nice turnout i could kanye west has passed away and i need to discover the unplayable asset in his head and because i work for a shadowy organization i know that certain people are born with certain ideas that would be a net good for humanity, but a net bad for the people who control humanity. So I've got to weave my way through all this kind of weird anti-Semitism, all this incoherence, the same incoherence, I might add, that you see in a person like Charles Manson, famously an MKUltra subject. But I've got my blind deal, 
and I finally find my unplayable asset, but the blind eel's having a hard time deciphering what exactly this is. And I'm racking my brain. I've never I've never encountered a problem like this. The blind eel cannot oh. seem to get this done. So what I decide to do is take Kanye's entire music catalog, convert it into binary code, zip it down, and then implant it in the blind eel. So it now has a new language base, a musical language base, oh, wow. with which to unzip this file. And what... <laughs> And what I find as the picture begins to slowly uh, uh, reveal itself are the alchemical philosopher's stone to create out of thin air Element 115, Bob Lazar's fam Bob Lazar who worked at uh, who claims to have worked at Area 51, uh, Element 115. The thing that makes spacecrafts move in their strange patterns unknown to us and seemingly uh, irrespective of, of gravity or wind currents or what have you. So I find that, I discover that Kanye West is in fact a direct spiritual descendant of Hermes Trismegistus and that the Philosopher's Stone was all about Element 115 the entire time. And I dub this new element, Yeezium. And then I give it over to my bosses. The end. <laughs> oh, well, look, you set a high standard every time. That that was uh, very, very interesting. I, I, I enjoyed that thoroughly. Uh, I think our listeners will. T I think there's something about, uh, you know, one of our underlying themes is that everybody should allow themselves the freedom, but also give themselves the challenge to to create mythologically to think mythologically to get into that groove because even you know if they think well I don't do that well I'm or I'm not you know whatever yeah we'll give it a try for starters but in that moment in that ritual moment we connect back with the whole circuit however far back in time it goes and if that's even the right way to think of it but there is a resonant theater of uh, performed joining and communion in that and that's we'll, we'll just feel a little less alienated if we try to do more things like that but I thought interestingly enough uh, you've done the important thing of not explaining or narrating but performing as in giving us a closer to one-to-one -one ratio with exactly some of the mechanics and the holistic achievement that the mechanics come together to form in Defoe's writing. And I think you may have answered your, your own question of, of how did he do it? How did he be so part of his moment and yet ahead of the curve and many curves? Um, because if you break down what, you know, your scenario, there is a very, very interesting alchemical mix of mythological, classical, big, you know, global themes, Jungian type of frames, with some very specific things of, of the moment. And I think the choice of your celebrity figure of the dead, that the target of this, the, the dead man whose brain you're exploring, was really shrewdly chosen. And, you know, 
bowl. It, it, it's something that's not going to go away out of the Twitter sphere next week, is it? It's no. the right choice. It's the right weight. You know, you're hunting after, you know, proportionately interesting game. You know, and I think mm -hmm. that, that Defoe did that. And of course, we would know more about that level of his virtuosity the more fluent we are in the English history of his day um, and what passed for popular culture of his day. Mm -hmm. But I think that was really, really well done. I like the, the evolution and growth of what the file that you're in, how to, uh, the, the troubleshooting of, of, of how to. Uh, you know, if the blind eel can't get in, get something new into the blind eel. I like mm -hmm. that. I thought mm -hmm. that was an inventive storytelling. Oh, cool. Thanks. You know, and that's maybe another thing of, you know, if people did let themselves be, be storytellers, you know, more directly, I think they'd find more of those skills naturally. It's, it's like, you know, home handyman stuff. If you actually do give yourself a chance to make a few mistakes and, you know, try a few things, you learn. And yeah, you get better, that, oh, you man. know? It's so important, right? Because I have no idea how binary code would even work, translating music. But that doesn't matter. People don't understand that people get hung up on this. They say, oh, I'm blocked because I don't know, you know, uh, what color his satchel would be or what the, the courtship rituals of, you know, sheep herders in Azerbaijan are in... I always want to say, as Grant Morrison famously said, when asked what kind of engine the Batmobile has, uh, it doesn't have one. I made it up. It's fiction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You could just make... I mean, that's not an excuse to be ignorant of the way that the world works, because the more that you know, the more authority you can bring to the writing, and the cooler it sounds. It's all about being cool, you know, and knowing things is cool contrary to popular belief but at the end of the day you know the devil's in the details and we're all about banishing satan here so don't worry about it well you know you said amongst many things there you you made a, a very simple point that might have just slipped past a lot of other people's hearing but it's so important you were talking about other writers and, and you you use the verb blocks they're blocked, you know? And that's a word that, you know, we use that, that expression all the time. As a teacher, I've come to see that I really believe in that idea. I didn't used to. Okay. I used to have a model of people just not having kind of evolved in that, sure. that way. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, well, my model, my paradigm is, is, is organic and therefore it's better. And, but the block thing is perfectly organic in, in a way. But, but it, it suggests that, that mythology that was very kind of the silly side of the 60s and 70s humanism movement that you and I celebrate and people like Lily and McKenna and, and you know the psychonauts uh, the silly version of that was uh, like a really bad reading of Bruno Belt Bettelheim you know that, that children are kind of the perfect state and they kind of get corrupted, and mm -hmm. it's just such a, a, a depressing way to think of maturity and adulthood, and yet it's so very much the idea of, of our society post-60s, you know? Mm -hmm. No mm -hmm. one wants to, to get old, therefore no one wants to be mature, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so there's, 
but I do think there is a thing about block that is worth looking at because just in the Lakoff metaphor sense, that suggests that there is a flow, that there is a natural mm. momentum. Wow. You know, the wow. river wants to go a certain way and How there are dams and locks that have been, you know, that's what I'm thinking. Dude. And, no, that's so crazy that we can have, that we can live our lives with only one half, by the way, the negative half of a metaphor. That just blew my mind. Of course, yeah, if there's a block, that means there's a flow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And that's that cool, idea man. of half a metaphor, that's so much the problem so much of the time. We can't deal with negative space. We have a real diff, you know, we're all in love with shadows and reflections, and yet we can't really deal with, you know, what, what happened when we have half something. We're thinking, well, oh, you know, exact, exactly. Well, I'm glad because I think there was something really important in that, and that's, that's cool, a kind man. of. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah. That's, that's, this, this has been an episode of big uh, philosophical, artistic takeaways for me. But that that's a great way to well we're not done but that's that's a a new peak I should say if there's a flow that means or if there's a block that means there's a flow incredible yeah yeah, yeah. and it's, you know I I think that is really cool because it, it will get people thinking because it's very difficult to I mean to contest that I mean it's just there in inherent in in the idea framework so mm-hmm. yeah I think some some things can open up with that. And uh, I just wanted to say that I loved your opening line, and I want to write a. I think this is a great song lyric. Uh, I'm working for a shadowy organization. <laughs> Isn't that great? I'm so into yeah. this. My my next book that comes out December first is a cyberpunk novel, so I'm in that. Uh, cyberpunk is just great because it's essentially hard-boiled pulp crime fiction, with whatever sci-fi element you want to put in it, into it. So I have that kind of thing on the brain. You know, I work for a shadowy corporation. My unit number is FGC249. That kind of, sh- it's, it's just so fun, dude. So much fun to write that kind of stuff. Well, it's, uh, it makes me nostalgic for the 90s, you know, and I think mm-hmm. there was such a golden era of that then. And I don't see any reason for uh, the genre, so to speak, or that kind of worldview, not to be brought back with great celebration. Have you, you know, have you read Rudy Rucker? Oh yeah, I I know Rudy blurb one of my books. And You're kidding me! No way! No, no. Oh look, you look because you pressed the Rudy button. I've just have I not told the story, dude? Oh, I've been no. I've been reading the Wear Tetralogy, and it's been blowing my mind. So Rudy's you know you know really Rudy Rucker. Good. Wow. Oh yeah. And this I, is so I got cool. to meet him. I got to meet him at the big Comic Con convention. Uh, it was at the Disney Hotel in Anaheim. And uh, the California Angels were playing baseball that night and there were fireworks going off all the time and there was just all this chaos and not you know people wandering around in weird costumes and you know the writing side of it was 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 big time but it was 
just a small portion of, you know, the whole deal, cosplay and merchandise and on and on and on. You know, you're competing with William Shatner and, you know, stuff like that. But at some point, there was a, a publisher's event in one of those big hospitality suites, you know, which really should be able to, you know, take on board quite a few people. And there were quite a few people there. And uh, Rudy was there, and uh, he uh, got me out on the balcony because he saw my discomfort, my distress. And uh, he said, you you haven't ever done one of these before. And so we're chatting out in the balcony with drinks, and there's all these fireworks from the stadium going off. But meanwhile, this what should have been a very big hospitality hotel suite had become a traffic jam, a complete and utter fire trap emergency traffic jam where anxiety was beginning to build. And I'll tell you why. It was not because of the number of bodies in the room exactly. It was because of the number of bodies Mm. so massive in bulk they needed electronic scooter chair things, you know. Uh-huh. Right. And there was not enough room for eight to ten to twelve of those. And and then it was kind of like a bumper car thing. And then one woman, not in one of the, you know, uh, had a complete full-on panic attack. I've got to get to the door. I've got to get to the door. And Rudy and I are just laughing our heads off on the balcony <laughs> and just thinking, wow, you know, at least we're out here. And the door, the width of the door, the sliding glass doorway protected us. <laughs> yeah, that's hilarious. And isn't it funny also that that story is very similar to how you and I met? There's something to be said for writers meeting each other outside or on a balcony in the smoking area to get away from the other writers. There's a whole tribe of us who do this, who go out to smoke and meet each other there. (laughs) So there's like, we, I had to get away from all that bullshit. You're right that, I mean, it's absolutely uh, an analog to how you and I met. It's absolutely. Um, the, The other, well, that group, wasn't as as weird as the comic time people uh, really, although they, you know, the Pizarros weren't as weird. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's yeah, pr- that's pretty weird. pretty uh, normal people overall. Um, but okay, so I guess it's too. I just I want to talk for like three hours now, but I think we need to get the, the episode moving on. So, do you have a tool and a tip for us? I do, and the tool is, is something that you have uh, really helped teach me uh, because it's a, it comes out of the imaginative challenges. And, but it does, it, it does have a degree of personal risk involved in it. Uh, but this is a call to action. Uh, and I have a very specific example. But the idea is that if you want a diagnostic about the people who are around you, who are in some sense you, you know, mm-hmm. in that you are all the characters in the same projected mm-hmm. reality kind of idea sense. I'm not saying that's the total truth, but I think it's 
I think there's something in it that, that our environment is our environment, you know, in that tactical day-to-day flesh-and-blood way. Mm-hmm. I think there's something undeniable about that. So if, if you have uh, questions about someone, give them this imaginative challenge. Say you're out walking in the desert or the frigid crevasses of Antarctica mm. and you come upon a statue on the scale of a Toltec colossal head mm-hmm. and it's of someone that you recognize who would it be mm. now we could plug in many things into this you know but it is the idea of taking the imaginative challenges which you really do perform every week taking that idea to the streets and trying that out on our friends and family mm. and seeing who will play along i mean it's it's about the idea of a game. I mean, one of the best essays I've ever published, I talk about uh, a zoologist who was uh, handling a, a, a male mandrel who was depressed to the point of, of death in, uh, in captivity. And he invented something called the mandrel speed game, which allowed the mandrel to, with some training, to press a button and challenge people passing by the zoo gates to play a, a reaction and strategy game with him, mainly, you know. <laughs> and uh, it, it totally rallied his spirits. I mean, he started yeah. really eating and training. You That's know, great. he he he'd get wound up. So my assertion in that piece is that uh, the one sure. Uh, diagnostic and evidence performance of intelligence is the notion of playing a game absolutely you know, with, yeah you know 100 so i think get next time you know out walking with with someone someone you haven't seen break with the script of small talk and complaints about day-to-day life and just take the risk of, of being seen as eccentric or you know a little bit weird or whatever and challenge them to play this game of what of the of the colossal head discovered out in the desert or the antarctic or arctic tundra you know i'm going to do this with rios when i pick her up from work yeah i mean it, it nothing can go wrong really i mean the most is that someone's going to just go why is he asking me this you know <laughs> they're going to be like david's really lost it he's he's weird which by the way uh yeah I have, of course, I've lost it. That's the only way yeah. to be sane. See, I think that you're already, you've got a buffer zone because people already know. So you've got to push the envelope. That's your your responsibilities. Yep. You're going down the other other direction there. Yeah, saying um, saying uh, David really seems to have gone off the deep end is tautological in nature. Of course, of course, yeah. It's just it's what I shifting sand, baby. That's where I'm at. Shifting sand. I mean, what I think is remarkable is the, the, the harnessing of the energy that you've managed. You know, it's kind of like, I think of you as kind of a, a wind farm. You know, it's, it's multifaceted. There's, but you're, there's ways of processing the chaos and turning it into something meaningful. And I've watched that sort of develop, and I really, it's just, it's fantastically fun to Thanks, see man. that evolve. Yeah.
yeah. appreciate that. Yeah, I, I, I'm. Well, it's always good to hear stuff like that because the majority of what you hear is that you're just crazy, and you get used to it. It doesn't hurt my feelings. I, I you know, I have a one and a half year old. I don't have feelings anymore. Uh, but it is good to hear from the other side, from people who are actually smart, who can kind kind of get what's going on with me. Like, oh, right, right, right. Processing, regurgitating, carrying on. That's that's the way to do it. But that was great. That that was awesome. Uh, man, this might be the best episode. <laughs> well, the, the, the tip one. is interesting, too. Yeah, the let's go. Let's do it. Okay. Well, I tuned into, and because this was the starting point of my rediscovery of Defoe, I wasn't going to look for the lunar voyages, in fact. Uh, he's part of such a rich tradition. I had kind of overlooked that part of his canon. I was thinking of, of pirates and, yes. uh, and piracies and Captain Mission, who uh, William Burroughs mentions, and the relationship between piracy and utopian ideals, which is, mm. I'd, I'd love to get, jump into that next week if we could, because we both. Yeah, I've never heard of that. Very, that's great. That, that's a really odd sort of idea. And you and I both are interested in utopian communities. And of course, America is a, has a wonderful, uh, quirky and uh, tragic history of, of the utopian mm-hmm. community. Mormons, etc. yeah. Yeah, and I mean, all the way, you know, Jim Jim, I mean, there's some, you know, visionary stories and some crises and some just bizarreness. I, I, somewhere in there, the Mormons fit, I'm not sure which, mm-hmm. but uh, there, there's something to look at there. So the word that, that tipped me off to that, it was, it was part of a phrase and it, it applied to several really key figures, but certainly to Andrew mm-hmm. Selkirk who became the model of Robinson Crusoe. And the phrase is, marooned at his own request. Mm. Okay? And that Put that on my is, tombstone. Oh, it's a fantastic... I've got a section of this uh, lost Pacific Islands segment sort of uh, called that. And it's, I just love that idea of, of, of maroon as, as a verb in that sense. But here's the tip, and it's, again, uh, sort of going back to the secrets of language that are very open, because language tries to talk to us and tell us, you know, its mysteries all the time, and we just ignore it, and it becomes invisible. But rhyming therapy, I mean, rhyming is one of the most lucrative forms of manipulating words there has ever been. It's, it goes back to the very, very beginnings of language, it is absolutely unavoidable to this day to this hour to this you know it's just everywhere really so why don't we use that and look at words in the same way we we talked about antonyms last time use some rhyming so i thought well maroon is an interesting word and then i thought lagoon lagoon Mm, it's a good one and then i plugged in well what would what would that mean as a verb what would be to be lagooned at your own request or to lagoon someone? <laughs> you know, think about that. And I suggest that opens up a few new channels of thought just by itself. It's, you don't you'd have to open a book or do any big, you know, 
It's not a big intellectual challenge necessarily at all. But think about what would lagoon mean as a verb. Mm. Mm-hmm. And then, because three is the magic world number, because it's more than two and less than four, as we know, I instantly got to doubloon. Doubloon. Oh. You know? That's a good pull. That's a good pull. Uh, you know, so and think of like I mean when I think of a doubloon, I think of Moby Dick. You know, mm-hmm. the balloon mm-hmm. nailed to the mast. You know, I mean, sure. that's by that point in the book, things have gotten really weird. Yeah, they got impatient. Uh, yeah, and but it's a great word. And now think about the triad: maroon, lagoon, doubloon. I mean, it's all pirate theme. Don't, Exactly. I mean, it's just, I mean, really, there's, it's unavoidable. You can't walk around that triad. They all fit under the rubric. No, of you, have to walk, you have to walk the plank. And then the whole thing starts to flow. Yeah. So, I mean, in, from, from one word, this thing ripples out. And I, I do think that is of the way that language functions. Yeah, uh, but you can do that in simple ways. So again, if a word sticks out and and you you know it's just something you notice over the next week, just pull it aside and see what words potentially rhyme with it. See mm-hmm. if there isn't some little field of radiating energy around there, and maybe seeing that will give you a little bit more insight, control, awareness. You know, yeah. Why did that pop up now? You know, have you been dreaming? I uh, I had a very uh, well. It was straightforward in, in the telling, but it was visually really intense. I needed some form of uh, treatment, brain treatment, at a kind of of really just amazing sort of clinic that looked like a cross between a super modernist uh, Japanese billionaire's garden under Mount Fuji sort of home and a really brutalist uh, Eastern European government installation. Mm. I couldn't decide if it was I'm seeing that. Really, ag- a really aggressive or really contemplative and peaceful. And I had... Ch- two choices of the therapeutic lines or treatments that I could be exposed to. And I expressed my resistance to making that choice because I thought I'm really here for the expertise of others not to make that kind of decision. But nonetheless, I was uh, forced to do so by these very sort of anonymous, uh, kind of more like butler sort of figures than orderlies or hospital healthcare people. But one uh, treatment uh, approach was this massive, organic, bacteriological, fungi kind of slime mold thing that was just, it was A, overwhelming in detail for me to cope with, and also really not quite repulsive or disgusting, but just more information than I could cope with. And... It was too alive. It was way too organic for me. <laughs> I thought, no. I, way I, too I organic. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> way too organic. 
So I went into the other, because there were only two options, and it was entirely the antinomical opposite. It was all rigid right angle shapes, squares, and rectangles. And the proposition seemed to be uh, with kind of thin things of metal, rather like the, the covers of industrial stoves, maybe. Something, you, you know, stainless steel, but not super heavy. But there were thousands of these pieces. And they could be painted and scratched on to be placed into some sort of pattern that would replicate this hologrammed mosaic that appeared. So there was a model that you had to, to fit. But you were working on something. I liked that. I thought that, I didn't know what to do over in that organic mess next door. You know, that mm -hmm. was too, too weird. Mm -hmm. I know at least what to do here. But as I started working, <laughs> and the metal was really you know, sharp and, and difficult and kind of nasty to work on, and the paint didn't adhere well, and scratching it was difficult, it was really st industrial stainless steel. But I, I, the more I looked at the, the, the model of this hologram mosaic, the more organic and complicated it appeared. And I thought, there's no way, there's absolutely no way I'm ever going to uh, be able to mangle these very right-angled metal mm. shapes into some richly mysterious organic form. You know, I'd be better off maybe next door in the slime. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. as I tried to get up, I had this sort of gray out in my brain, in my sleep. And one of these anonymous sort of butler figures appeared, but fully med medical uh, industry, but more like somebody working at an insane asylum or something. And the uh, phrase was, no capacity. Mm. And I thought, oh. And I didn't accept that. And I raced out. And I wasn't sure where, if I was racing back to the organic mess or just trying to wake up. But I did, in fact, wake up. That's wonderful. I've just been meditating on this uh, Japanese billionaire's, you know, uh, 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 feng shui garden brutalist structure and I'm picturing this enormous concrete awning over a kind of paved platform with sunken sunken uh, with full on you know like nice long steps down into bonsai gardens type scenario just a really great image in my head. And of course the concrete has all the signs of the weather because we're, we're adhering to the wabi-sabi. They're not upkeeping this, this structure. So it looks weathered. And I do, I, I do like this idea that there's, that the organic is too much, but that in some kind of strange way, Did you hear that? That was Gus. Gus just farted <laughs> on the fuck. That's, that's too fantastic. Fun. He's eating that's... food and he just, <laughs> while I'm in the middle of pontificating like a tool, he just lets one rip. Let's just end it there. That's perfect. <laughs>
<laughs> well, that was perfect because that's what you were talking. That was just that was the greatest punctuation you could orchestrate, man. Oh, too um, funny. I'm pressing stop right now. Okay. <laughs>